Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 11, Ezra, chapters 5 and 6. We're going to conclude chapter 5 of Ezra this week. We're going to get well into chapter 6. Now what's taken us so long is that we have chosen this point in the book of Ezra to pause and to examine the prophets Haggai and Zechariah who arose to both encourage and warn the Jews that the rebuilding of God's temple was to be their top priority. Their top priority. Open your Bibles to Ezra chapter 5. Ezra chapter 5. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 1123. 1123. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Judeans in Jerusalem and Judah. They, promised, they prophesied to them in the name of the God of Israel. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Yosadach, began building the house of God in Jerusalem, and with them were the prophets of God helping them. No sooner had they begun when Tatnai, the governor of the territory beyond the river, Boznai and their colleagues came and they asked them, Who gave you permission to rebuild this house and finish this wall? What are the names of the men putting up this building? But the eye of their God was on the leaders of the Judeans, so they didn't stop them until the matter could come before Darius and a reply in writing be received. Here is the text of the letter which Tatnai, the governor of the territory beyond the river, Shtar Boznai and their fellow officials beyond the river, sent to Daryavesh the king. They sent him a letter in which it was written to Daryavesh the king, Complete Shalom. Let the king know that we went to the province of Judah to the house of the great God and it is being rebuilt with large stones and timber is being set in the walls. This work is being done energetically. It is making good progress under the direction of their leaders and we asked them, who gave you permission to rebuild this house and finish this wall? We also asked them their names so that we could write you the names of the men in charge of them. And they gave us this answer. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. We are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, built and finished by a great king of Israel. But because our ancestors provoked the God of heaven, he handed them over to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babel, the Kostim. He destroyed this house. He carried off the people to Babel. But in the first year of Korish, Cyrus, king of Babel, Cyrus gave the king authorization to rebuild this house of God. And moreover, the gold and silver articles belonging to the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had removed from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to the temple of Babel, Cyrus the king took out of the temple in Babel. They were turned over to a man named Sheshbazar, whom he appointed governor. And he said to him, Take these articles, go, put them in the temple in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its original site. So the same 
Shetzbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God in Jerusalem. It has been under construction ever since and it isn't finished yet. Now, therefore, if it seems good to the king, let a search be made in the royal treasury there in Babel to determine whether a decree was issued by Korish the king to rebuild this house of God in Yerushalayim and let the king send us his decision concerning this matter. About 520 B.C., some 35 years or so after a group of a few thousand exiled Jews found their way back to Judah, verse 1 tells us that Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to the Judahites in the name of the God of Israel. This is just another way of saying that these two men were not merely zealous Jews who took it upon themselves to make fiery speeches in order to get the temple reconstruction going. They were sent by God with God's message to get back to work. The result of their prophetic utterances is stated in verse 2. The Jewish governor of Judah, Zerubbabel, the high priest, Yeshua, took the Lord's messages to heart and despite all the political pressure and the outright threats, mostly from the Sumerians, they organized the people, they restarted the stalled building project. Now working alongside them were Haggai and Zechariah. The prophets didn't just speak their peace and then disappear to leave the hard work to others. Now it's not too hard to imagine that the Sumerians didn't just roll over and play dead upon this latest attempt to complete the temple. No doubt they redoubled their efforts to discourage the Jews when they saw these workmen show up. So Haggai and Zechariah needed to stick around to constantly remind these harassed Jews why it was that the temple was so important. And let's revisit momentarily just why a new temple was so important. It's because it was important to God. Jehovah had suspended his relationship with Judah some 70 years earlier when the when after decades of unfaithfulness by his chosen people, some cosmic line in the sand was crossed. And he decided enough was enough. And as punishment, the Lord put the geopolitical circumstances together and he laid an unction upon the ambitious Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to come and conquer Judah and to haul off the Jews to Babylon. However, God also promised that after 70 years of exile, the Jews' punishment would be over, he'd return them to their homeland, and he would reinstate his fellowship with them. The meeting point of this renewed fellowship between the Jews and their God was the temple in Jerusalem. Until the temple was rebuilt, the fellowship could not happen. In fact, the Lord saw the act of rebuilding the temple as tangible proof that the Jews had turned back to Him. 
And for political reasons, up to now, the Jews had decided against rebuilding the temple. Now this lack of interest in rebuilding his house indicated to God that they were not sincere in their desire to reestablish their relationship with him. Because the God principle of how this renewal of relationship could take place was clearly stated and established by Zechariah. In Zechariah 1.3 we read, Therefore tell them that Adonai Zevaot says this, Return to me, says Adonai Zevaot, and I'll return to you. Says Adonai Zevaot. Return to me, and I'll return to you. I want to put that in the typical covenant protocol that is expressed in the covenant of Moses. If you return to me, then I'll return to you. God's renewed fellowship was conditional. No doubt the Jews were a little bit shocked to hear Zechariah out of those words because they felt they had already returned to God. After all, they traveled all the way from Babylon to Jerusalem enduring about four months of arduous traveling conditions with the strongest inner desire to rebuild the temple and to reestablish Torah observance. So, <clears throat> embedded in this short verse, there is yet another God principle revealed. True repentance must always be proved by our actions. They must be approved, it must be proved by our deeds, by our behavior. Otherwise, God counts it as no repentance at all. Showing up isn't enough. Making fine speeches isn't enough. Being zealous in your heart, it's not enough. Planning, preparation to do what God has assigned us to do, it's not enough. Doing what God has assigned us to do is what the Lord demands of us. And that doing could be inconvenient, uncomfortable, outright perilous. It may not make as many friends. In fact, it may alienate us from some of the friends that we've had. And make no mistake, doing God's will isn't a guarantee of success. At least success is defined from an earthly standpoint. Any dedicated athlete can tell you that using every last ounce of their gifts, training until it aches, having the right frame of mind, getting the best trainer and coach doesn't guarantee success. Rather, there is yet another God principle that governs our efforts. Obey God. Do the best you can as it seems you are directed to do and let the chips fall where they may. The outcome is in God's hands, not ours. Now, I don't know about you, but that might be the God principle that I struggle with the most. For 
For me, success is nothing less than tangible, visible victory. Success is winning. Success is accomplishing that which I planned and then set out to do. Nothing is harder, believe me, for my temperament, for my personality, than to do what I am convinced the Lord wants of me and to not reach what I see as the goal. Disappointment and frustration set in and, and I have to work pretty hard to reconcile my definition of success with the Lord's. I have to yield to the reality that whatever I have done is just a piece and a much larger divine puzzle that might not be visible or even fully assembled for many years. Perhaps not even in my lifetime. And a deep personal flaw is that I don't easily surrender. In fact, a long time ago, I'll tell you a little story on myself. A long time ago in my corporate days, at the end of a bit of a testy meeting, a colleague once looked over and angrily said to me, I sure hope I'm never in a hostage situation with you because you're going to get us both killed. I think my wife would agree with that. I don't surrender easily. And that can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing. Towards God, it's a bad thing. So naturally, verse 3 tells us that no sooner had the Judahites courageously gone back to work on the temple before a high Persian government official shows up to question them about it. But let's be clear, there's nothing in the text to indicate that this official, Tatnai, called the governor, had any hostile intent towards the Jews. Persian records indicate that actually it was a fellow named Ushtanu who was the governor of the beyond the river province, not Tatnai. It seems that Tatnai must have been a vice regent similar to, to what Joseph was in relation to the Pharaoh down in Egypt. The reason that we're going to see several folks, by the way, called governor in our English Bible translations of Ezra is because the Aramaic word that is being translated, pecha, isn't well understood. More and more it seems that it must be a broad and flexible term used for a Persian official as opposed to a specific title or a specific office. It seems to indicate any high-level administrator of a district or a province or a large satrapy. So Tatnai must have reported to this Ushtanu. In any case, Tatnai and, other Pers- and another Persian official named Shitar Boznai came to Jerusalem for the purpose of investigating this building project. Now, just ask yourself, what might have alerted Tatnai that something nefarious might have been going on in Judah that he personally needed to look into? Must have been the Sumerians some other opposition group that made an appeal to him. Nevertheless, Tatnai seems to have been thorough and professional in his investigation with no preconceived notions and no hint of bigotry. 
So his first inquiry is, who gave you permission to build this temple and this wall? Second inquiry, what are the names of the men who are leading this effort? Now both of these are reasonable questions that any bureaucrat might ask. So verse 5 tells us that whatever Tutnai was told by Zerubbabel, it had to be pretty convincing. Because although he would certainly certainly take his investigation a little further, there's no reason, he sought no reason to block the construction until he inquired of the current king of Persia to see if he could validate what Zerubbabel had told him. Now the author of Ezra, however, is quite observant to note that in reality it was because of God's unseen intervention on behalf of his people that Tutnai didn't stop the temple work as he waited for further instructions from King Darius. Now next we get the text of the letter that Tutnai sent to King Darius. Now the letter is factual. It's unemotional. It's without an obvious agenda other than to transmit to King Darius what Tutnai observed. And what Tutnai begins with is to assure the king that he went there personally. So what the king is reading isn't secondhand, it's not hearsay. <clears throat> Large stones, he says, are being used for construction, as is structural timber, with the only source for such timber being from the forests of Lebanon, which are under the king's control. Further, Tetanai reports that the workers are zealous in their, their tasks and the progress is steady. Why does this matter? Because regardless of the fact that this is taking place in Judah and that the temple is for the God of Israel and that the workers are Jewish, this is Persian territory. The Jews are citizens of Persia. So all of this belongs to the empire of Persia and the results to one degree or another reflect on the king of the empire. Now note in verse 8, it is said in the letter that the temple is dedicated to the great God. Now this letter is naturally written and recorded in our Bibles in Aramaic because that's the language of the Persian empire. So the words translated into English in great God are Rav Elah. Elah is a generic term for a god. It can mean any god. Thus exactly which god is meant is left ambiguous because it serves a sensitive political situation like this one perfectly. Better to let each side kind of assume whatever suits them. A couple of verses later, it's mentioned that the names of those in charge of the construction project were gathered and sent to the king. However, no names are listed in the letter. So, they were sent in a separate communication. Or, what we are reading is a condensed form of the original. It's impossible for us to know for sure. Well, starting in verse 11, we see that Tetnai fully intended to be fair and equitable with the Jews, so he gives Darius the Jews' response to his inquiries of them. And what the Jewish response amounts to is a justification and a defense of what they're doing, why they're doing it, 
who gave them permission. And the justification begins with identifying themselves with the God of heaven and earth. And once again, since this letter is in Aramaic, it reads, Elah Shamayin Arah. Thus repeating the generic and non-specific Aramaic word for God, which is Elah. The God of heaven was a term the Persians regularly used because the Persians had a God of heaven and a creator God who they called Ahura Mazda. Thus by the Jews using the term Elah, once again, in their identification with a certain God, even though of course they meant Yehoveh, the Persians could take it to mean Ahura Mazda. And so another politically sensitive issue could kind of be waltzed around. Then the history of this building project is given. The Jews explain that this new structure is only a replacement of a former structure built a long time ago by a great Israelite king. Now King Solomon, builder of the house, was only important to Hebrew history. And he lived and died more than four centuries earlier. So no name is given because it would have meant nothing to the Persians. And in a bit of refreshing candor, Zerubbabel admits to Tatnai that the reason for the temple being in ruins is because the ancestors of the Jews had provoked the God of heaven. Again, the generic term Elah Shamayin is used. And he caused Nebuchadnezzar to come and attack the house of God and to carry off the Jews to Babylon. Now, I think the willingness of Zerubbabel to openly confess the Jewish responsibility for their own calamity is part and parcel of the repentance that God was looking for. And to lay the reason for the destruction at the feet of the God of heaven as a just consequence for the Jews' unfaithfulness, no doubt gave Tatnai the sense that what he was being told was the truth. No matter how less than flattering it was to the Jewish people. Well, then Zerubbabel reports that it was Korish, Cyrus, who gave the authorization to rebuild the temple. But notice that he is referred to as the king of Babel, not as king of Persia. This is not an error, because indeed Cyrus can be called king of Babel, as that was the capital of the Babylonian empire that he had just captured. And indeed, he was Babel's new king. And no doubt by using the title King of Babylon, it also helped to connect the entry into the exile to Babylon with the exit from the exile to Babylon. Now remember, even though laymen and academics alike will say that the Jews returned from their Babylonian exile, in fact, they didn't return until the Persian Empire era had begun. So they actually returned from Persia. They went to Babylon, they returned from Persia. So in verse 13, the crux of the justification and the most important argument in favor of the Jews' position is used. King Cyrus personally ordered the rebuilding of the Jewish temple. The next couple of verses merely explain that while Nebuchadnezzar had looted the temple and used its valuable artifacts in the Babylonian temple to Marduk, 
Korish had those same uh, same treasures retrieved. He gave them back to the Jews to use them in their own temple. And the temple could be rebuilt exactly where it had been located originally. Thus, no ambiguity remained. King Cyrus ordered the temple to be rebuilt in the original location. He dedicated it to the Jews' God and he furnished with its original furnishings and ritual implements so that it could be the same as it was before. It was to be a faithful reproduction of what had been there before. Now that Tatnai had reported what he observed and documented the answers he received to his the answers he received to his questions he concludes in verse 17 now that he requests the king to have these records searched accomplished he wants to know if the jews claims are true and when that's been completed would the king please let tatnai know what his decision is going to be now with all these facts concerning this matter Let's move on to chapter 6 now because here we're going to get the king's reply. Open your Bibles to chapter 6 of Ezra, page 1124, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Darius the king issued an order. A search was made in the archives building where treasures were stored in Babel. And there was found at Achmta and the palace which is in the province of Medea a scroll on which was written the following memorandum. In the first year of Korish the king, Korish the king issued this decree concerning the house of God in Jerusalem, let the house be rebuilt the place where they offer sacrifices. Let its foundations be firmly laid. Its height is to be 90 feet, its breadth 90 feet, with three rows of large stones and one row of new timber. The expenses are to be charged to the king's treasury. And let's also let the gold and silver articles belonging to the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar removed from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babel, be restored, be returned to the temple in Jerusalem, each item to its place, and you are to put them in the house of God. Therefore, Tatnai, the governor of the territory beyond the river, Shtar Boznai and your colleagues, the officials beyond the river, stay away from there. Let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Judeans and the leaders of the Judeans rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I herewith issue this order concerning how you are to assist these leaders of the Judeans rebuilding this house of God. The expenses of these men are to be defrayed promptly from the royal funds from what taxes collected beyond the river so that the work can continue. Whatever they need, young bulls, rams, lambs for bird offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, olive oil, according to what the Kohanim, the priests in Jerusalem say, is to be given them daily without fail. So that they can offer sacrifices with a fragrant aroma to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. I also order that if anyone defies this order, a beam is to be pulled from his house. He is to be lifted up and impaled on it. His house is to be reduced to rubble. May the God who has caused his name to be there overthrow any king or people that tries to defy it, to destroy this house of God in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have issued this order. Let it be carried out to the letter. 
Then Tatnai, the governor of territory of the territory beyond the river, Shtar Boznai and their colleagues obeyed strictly because Daryavesh the king had given them the order to do so. The leaders of the Judeans made good progress with rebuilding thanks to the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They kept building until they were finished in keeping with the commandment of the God of Israel in accordance with the order of Korish, Daryavesh, Artaxerxes, king of Persia. This house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Daryavesh the king. The people of Israel, the Kohanim, the Levites, and the other people from the exile joyfully dedicated this house of God. At the dedication of this house of God, they offered a hundred young bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, twelve male goats, corresponding to the number of the tribes of Israel. Then they installed the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their orders for the service of God in Jerusalem as written in the book of Moses. The people from the exile kept Passover, Pesach, on the 14th day of the first month. For the Kohanim and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were pure. So they slaughtered the Pesach lambs for all the people from the exile and for their kinsmen, the priests, and for themselves. The people of Israel who had returned from the exile and all those who had renounced the filthy practices of the nations living in the land in order to seek Adonai, the God of Israel, ate the Passover lamb and joyfully kept the feast of Matzah for seven days. For Adonai had filled them with joy by turning the heart of the king of Asher towards them so that he assisted them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. I want to see that happen again. King Darius, being a professional, an enlightened king, saw fit to follow through with Tatnai's request. He ordered a record search to begin in Babylon where no record was found. Then he extended the record search for Cyrus's decree to another record city and this demonstrates his honest desire to administrate fairly and impartially. Another record city was in the city of Ahmata, also known as Ekbektana in the kingdom of the Medes. Persians, they were the Persians' governing partner of the empire. There were three record cities in use by the first several kings of the Persian Empire. Babylon, Ekbektana, and Susa. There were royal capitals established in each of these cities. And the king lived in each one according to the season of the year. The record of Cyrus's decree to rebuild the temple was indeed found at Ekbektana. This was the king's summer palace. Well, starting in verse 3 is the contents of the letter that was sent back to Tetnai. In the first year of King Cyrus, he ordered that the temple be rebuilt in Jerusalem at the place where they offer sacrifices, meaning the altar of burnt offering. And interestingly, even the dimensions of the temple are specified. 90 feet high, 90 feet long, although the proportions as recorded are odd and not those of the original temple. It is said that it must have three rows of large stones at its base. Now large stones were difficult to handle much more difficult to build with than small stones. But they were infinitely more durable and beautiful. So they were more expensive. 
In addition, there would be one row of new timber, that is referring to the roof rafters, that would span the temple from side to side. Timber was expensive because timber that was of the strength and of the size to be used to carry structural loads, well, that was rare in the Middle East. So why the attention to these dimensions and materials? Verse 4 gives us the answer. Generous King Cyrus ordered that the royal Persian treasury was to pay for the construction, so the general specifications set both the upper and the lower limits for the costs. He had a budget in mind. Then the document states that all the gold and silver articles taken from the temple by Nebuchadnezzar were to be returned to the temple in Jerusalem. So everything that Zerubbabel claimed to Tatnai had been proven to be accurate. Therefore, King Darius instructs Tatnai that the governor and his officials are to stay away from that worksite and leave the Jews in peace to build their temple. No interference would be tolerated. But then Tatnai gets a little bit of bad news. Seems as though the money for the project is to come from the taxes collected only from Tatnai's governing district called Beyond the River. Clever king. See, the king will not be sending any funds from the Persian treasury. The government administration of Beyond the River is to provide the funding. Once again, the king looks magnanimous. He gets all the credit as he spends other people's money for a popular project. Eh, Not much has changed in politics um, since ancient times. Even more, the Beyond the River district is to supply all the animals needed for the daily sacrifices at the temple as well as the other ritual items needed in large quantities like salt to absorb blood from the meat, wine, olive oil, and the wheat, no doubt, was to help feed the Levites and the priests. What does the king want in return for all this? He wants the priests of the God of Israel to pray for the life of the king and for his family, especially for his sons, one of which is scheduled to be his successor. And he also, the the remainder of his sons will be part of the royal court. In the famous Cyrus Cylinder, which you see in the illustration, this famous Cyrus Cylinder was was a great archaeological find. And in it is recorded this general instruction that is to be followed throughout his empire. And it reads this way. May all the gods whom I've resettled in their sacred cities ask daily, Bel and Nebo, for a long life for me. To Marduk, my lord, they should say this, Cyrus, the king who worships you, and Cambyses, his son. It cuts off. In other words, Cyrus had ordered that all the god idols that had been captured by Nebuchadnezzar were to be returned to their various cultures and religions from whence they were taken so that they could reinstitute 
their religious cults and worshipped their own gods as they pleased. However, these same religious cults were to add to the worship of their own gods a petition to the Persian gods Bel, Nabo, and Marduk for the sake of the king Cyrus and for his family. So what we should understand from this inscription is something that was a truism for ancient times even among the Hebrews. They all believed in many gods existing. The concept of monotheism for the Hebrews, especially at first, was not that there was only one god in existence. It's that while all the other cultures had many gods, the Hebrews were only allowed by their god to have one. That was their definition of monotheism at first. Now the ancient minds, you see, had no problem with accepting many gods and that each pantheon was dedicated to a certain nation and its king. So Cyrus had no issue believing that the God of Israel was Jehovah and that he indeed existed and he operated in the territory of Judah and that Jehovah had powers to affect matters on earth. And by showing respect to all gods in his empire, Cyrus hoped to not only win the affection of his subjects, but also the favor of all the gods, if not in doing his bidding, at least that they wouldn't try to harm him. And if anyone were to think to defy this king's order concerning rebuilding the Jerusalem temple and instead they harassed the Jews, huh, there'd be a severe consequence. Most Bible versions, including our complete Jewish Bibles, translate verse 11 to say that a wooden beam was to be removed from the house of the person who would violate Darius' order and that that beam should be placed into the ground and then the offender impaled upon it. A couple of versions disagree with this translation because some scholars say this penalty seems a little bit too harsh for the offense. However, in the end, that's no more than a Bible editor's personal opinion. And in fact, impalement was a common punishment for obedience to the king, even if that particular disobedience wouldn't seem to warrant the death penalty. Further, this person's house would then be destroyed. Thus, the consequence would affect the violator's entire household. The king's letter then ends with a curse. And the use of such curses was the norm for the ancient Eastern world. And of course, using the general understanding of how God operated as his rationale, Darius invokes the God of this temple in, in Jerusalem as the guarantor of his curse upon anyone who dared to defy his order to leave the Jews in peace to build. Now we're informed that Tetnai obeyed the king's order to the letter as did his associates. Thus, with all the formal charges of the Jews against the Jews rather swept away, and their right to rebuild the temple reaffirmed by the current king of Persia, the temple took shape rapidly. There would be no interruptions until it was finally completed in the sixth year of Darius's reign. The sixth year of Darius's reign would have been 515 BC or 72 years since the destruction of Solomon's temple. This is so close to the 70 years predicted by Jeremiah in his book, chapters 25 and 29, that for us to quibble that 72 years means the 70 years prophecy was inaccurate is disingenuous. 
When we see round numbers in the Bible like 40 or 70, they are usually partially symbolic and partially there to give us a reasonable approximation of time or of whatever it is that's being referred to. In other words, like when David like of David when it is said that he reigned for 40 years, that's not precisely accurate. It was closer to 41, maybe even 42 years. And many academics and liberal and conservatives agree that while these round numbers in scripture and prophecy at times have been precise, more often than not, they are only very close approximations. And part of the reason for using round numbers in prophecy is because surely the Lord knew that when these numbers were first given to His prophets in these ancient cultures, calendars of various societies didn't even agree. Some used lunar months. Some used solar years. Some used just seasons. Some used the reigns of kings. And then there were a couple of other ways to count years employed as well. So to this day, there are many disagreements over how to precisely count years in the Bible. That God said so many years in advance that it was going to be 70 years from the temple's destruction until the new one was built and that it was 72 years by the modern Gregorian calendar but may have been exactly 70 years by some calendar of that era in itself is amazing. And it proves God's mastery over time and history. Well, verses 16 and 17... interesting in that it helps us to see how the Jews thought of themselves at this time in history in relation to their heritage. And it is that they saw themselves as representing all 12 tribes of Israel. However, we should also understand that on the one hand, the meaning of verse 16 saying that those who attended the temple dedication were one, the people, the Am of Israel. Next, the priests. And finally, the Levites. Is merely to announce the attendees in the terms of the three basic divisions that God ordained for Israel. In the law of Moses. The lay people, Israel. The Levites, who were separated away from the tribes at Mount Sinai. And then the priests, who were separated away from the Levites to directly serve God on behalf of all Israel. And at the dedication, an opulent amount of animals were sacrificed, but a very telling piece of information is given to us. That a sin offering for all Israel, Kol Israel, consisting of 12 male goats, one for each tribe, were also sacrificed. Let's remember that by this time in history, the ten tribes of the northern portion of the former kingdom of Israel called Ephraim Israel had been deported. They'd been scattered by the Assyrians throughout the Asian continent into parts of northern Africa. We hear nothing more in the Bible except in the form of prophecies about when in the latter days they will rejoin their brethren Judah in the promised land. But these are always in the form of messianic prophecies.
prophecies. That is, the return of the ten tribes is a harbinger of the imminent coming of Messiah. So while I've discussed with this discussed this with you before, it bears repeating. In modern Judaism, a basic belief is that the modern Jews represent all that's left of Israel, and thus of all twelve tribes. And we see more or less the earliest start of that belief that grew into a, tr- a tradition right here in Ezra. Yet there is simply no historical or scriptural validation of that belief and tradition. Judah is just one house of Israel. Ephraim Israel is the other house of Israel. And those two houses have not been together. They've not even lived side by side since late in the 8th century BC. But in modern times, since the birth rather rebirth of the modern state of Israel in 1948 the Jews have been challenged in this tradition of them being the sole representative of all 12 tribes by the reemergence of many of the so-called 10 lost tribes and they have demanded their right to live in the promised land as Israelites but not as Jews because they thoroughly understand that a Jew represents only the house of Judah. As momentous was the rebuilding of the temple in Ezra's day, it will be all the more so in our day. Because when the sacrifices of dedication to ordain that third temple into service are made on behalf of all twelve tribes of Israel, it'll be because indeed actual representatives of all 12 tribes will be physically present. And this is because many of those 12 tribes have members who have already immigrated back to Israel. Many more are on the way as we speak. What an amazing day in which we live. We'll conclude chapter 6 next time.